It's mid-February, y'all. Oh, already. I think that it's great that we're finally in February because I feel like January is always like an unknown quality and I just want to get it over with. Yes. Do you feel that way? It's true. January kind of sucks. Yeah, there's not much going on. There's no like big holidays. Everyone's tired. Everyone's tired from overexerting themselves in December. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a combination of recovery and letdown. Not that we're necessarily huge Valentine's Day fans, but... Oh, onward. Yeah, and also, I don't know, I, I always think about how previous years can inform, like, the energy of the time of the year that you're in, and it just feels like February is the time where everybody starts sort of, like, amping up their creativity again, and they, they're more things going on. And so I'm feeling that energy a little bit, which is, yeah, it is. It's nice. It's it's a really interesting shift. Yeah. And every day, it, it's a little bit more sunlight. And every day we get a little closer to summer. <laughs> <laughs> which is your happy seasons. My jam. Welcome to the Viola-centric podcast. We are two curious violists finding inspiration through authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. So I just started watching this show on Apple Plus called Shrinking. Ooh, and I think I, I sold it to you as a movie, but it is not. It is a okay. serial TV show and it has Harrison Ford and Jason Segel. And oh my gosh, Aaron and I st- watched the first episode last night. It was funny, but slightly dark. Yeah. But slightly dramatic. And it just kind of pushed all the right buttons for me. So Ooh. I really recommend that. I've been looking for a new streaming show lately. I feel like I've been, once I finished Fleischman is in trouble, I was kind of... Did you read that book? No. Did you? Mm-hmm. Is it good? Yeah. I thought it was really well done. I've yeah. always been a read the book, what then watch the movie type person. It's hard to watch those kind of shows after you've already read the book. I bet. <laughs> Literally the opposite if I ever get to the book. <laughs> uh-uh. That's my funniest story about that is Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So I had never read Tolkien. Like never. You are and- going to alienate some people here. You better be careful. I know. I'm sorry to everyone in advance, and I respect you so much for being able to read this book. But I remember watching the movies and thinking, this is awesome. And then I got the book and I was started trying to read it. And the way he writes is like, you know, and then they came across a little flower that was growing out of a rock. And they sat by the rock and one of them pulled the flower out and the flower petals fell to the ground. And then... The <laughs> I can't remember getting through like three pages being like, I can't do this. I can't do 700 pages of this. I'll lose my mind. (laughs) I'll just watch the three and a half hour movie. (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine if they left all that in? How long it would be? I know. I have to go back and look for like any scenes where they like zoom in on a single flower growing out of a rock. I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) It's funny because that's sort of how I talk. You you take the scenic route in your I talking. Do. I do. I get that from my mother. My sister mm-hmm. and I both. There's been a lot of joking about that lately that everyone in our lives has had to listen to us tell stories that are like too long for what it is that we're trying to say. <laughs> and my sister and I tease my mom about it when it happens with her to the point where sometimes we're like trying to change the subject and <laughs> she'll circle back and we'll be like, oh, oh, we're still talking about this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sorry in advance for the fact that as we get older, that's probably going to happen more. (laughs) I'm here for it. I'm always here for good storytelling. Because I feel like I am not a good storyteller. I kind of cut right to the chase. (laughs) And Aaron and his family are great storytellers. They do the great lead up and all the details. And I enjoy that, but I cannot do it myself. Mm. I've tried over the years to kind of evolve and like add a little bit more embellishment, but it never quite hits right. So (laughs) yeah, there's like a storyteller that tells you a thing and you go, oh my God, I need so much more information. Okay. And then the job is to ask questions. Uh But I fall on the other side of that, which is like, okay, it's too much now. Uh, Just just get to the point. What's what's that? What happened? (laughs) Oh, so you enjoy a more direct storytelling approach, but you yourself exhibit a more roundabout storytelling approach. My guess is those people that you think of who are the greatest storytellers strike the balance. Yeah. They know just the right amount of detail to include... You know, storytellers and joke tellers. Oh, I am a terrible joke teller. Oh, I'm I'm the worst. But one of my favorite memories about my dad is the way that he told stories. And he was not a good, or uh, jokes, with the way he told jokes. He was not a great joke teller, but he enjoyed telling jokes so much. (laughs) And he would often just make himself crack up before he even got to the punchline because he knew what the punchline was, but he just couldn't stop himself from just laughing before he delivered it. Oh, funny, but great joke tellers. I really admire that. That bard quality, you know? Yes, the bard quality. That's, yeah, I do not have that either. That's a really impressive quality in a person. It really is. Yeah. And it's just so much fun to be around people who can like genuinely make you laugh, you know? Yeah, 100%. We like to laugh. We do like to laugh. I do appreciate, and we have this type of friendship, and I was just reminded of this the other day, even if you're not good joke tellers, if you are synced up in the right way, you can make each other laugh just by going down some sort of train of thought. And I've had the most delightful opportunities to catch up with some people from my past a little bit lately. And one of them is a friend of mine who we both worked with for a little bit when she was living in the area, and she moved She was disenfranchised by the freelance experience and how expensive it was to live here. And she thought, I'm just going to try something new. And she picked up and moved to Santiago, Chile, which is crazy. (laughs) Just like, I'm just going to go try it out. And the funny thing is, this is the way she told me. She's like, I didn't think I was going to play. She's like, I was going to go get a normal job and just like live like a normal person. I was going to leave my viola at home. And as I was getting ready to leave, I thought, okay, I guess I'll bring you along. I was like, oh my God, it like forced its way into your life. (laughs) So she ends up, of course, playing with their national orchestra there in Santiago. And that's her job now. But anyway, we hadn't seen each other in probably over a decade and it's amazing how when you have that kind of connection with somebody like the conversation everything just picks up exactly where it was and she is a friend of mine that I mean we would be like peeing our pants laughing so hard about just something stupid that you know you and I get like this all the time like just it's nonsense but somehow you could feed off of each other and yeah Yeah. that type of relationship is something to be cherished for sure Mm -hmm. yep definitely (laughs) well they say that having close friendships makes you live longer. Good. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And right back at you. Thank you. (laughs) So we'll basically be doing this when we're 110. Oh, maybe we can set a Guinness book. Could you imagine? Oldest podcasters. 
Old Biddies Podcast. Yeah, we need to rebrand. Someone will have to set up the equipment for us. By then we'll be like big names. Yeah. It'll be a big yeah. deal. So famous that they just shuttle us from our little nursing home rooms, wheel us over to the podcast studio. Can you imagine though the stories that we would have? Like <clears throat> our nursing home mates, they could tell us all kinds of stories. There'd be so much tea. There would be lots of tea. So much tea spilled. Yeah. So we're talking with Matt Littman today. Yes. You were fangirling hard. I was and I still am in the yeah. afterglow of our oh. conversation with him because you know, you meet people, well, you have an idea of people and then you meet them and sometimes you're disappointed. And this did not disappoint. No. I no. just, I kind of knew and I hoped, and then I came to know he was the type of person that could have like a really great conversation with us. And it was so delightful. He's a gem. He is. He's very thoughtful, very positive energy, just like naturally emanates a positive energy. And we found out that he was an OG violist, which made me very happy. I was like, uh -huh. oh, somebody can be that good who started on viola, which oh, is like a total... lots of people like that. Yeah, I have a like head you. space thing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but we did talk about our violin envy a little bit. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, we talked about all kinds of stuff we can really relate to. So many things. It was quite relate the conversational journey, wasn't it? Yes. There was a little astrology mixed in there. Yep. And oh, the part where we talked about, we ended up talking about why American audiences aren't, our culture is not as receptive to classical music as European and other parts of the world are. And he brought up such a great point about our recording agreements and how you can distribute your own recordings that you do as a soloist based on where they took place and what the agreements were, and that get, kind of gives you the right to distribute them or not. And that was just like mind blowing to me. I, I think you're going to really enjoy that part of the conversation. It was like light bulbs going off in my mind. Yeah, I came away from that having some real, I would say having a lot of questions about yeah. not necessarily why those agreements are in place in the United States, because I can understand where they come from, but asking myself whether or not there still should be that kind of stronghold on intellectual property that, that comes out of musical endeavors here in this country. Yes. Is it isolating us more? It's so interesting how some of the things we talk about in the last episode with Donnie in terms of elitism and this like sort of isolating ourselves from the rest of the community and how that hasn't worked. It's interesting to consider that some of the stuff we explore with Matthew kind of dovetail off of that. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, he's just a delightful person, very thoughtful, really a very like body-minded approach to playing, mind-body connection discussions that were very appropriate given we're about halfway through the season and I think all of us are starting to hurt <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> from playing. So just kind of recognizing that, discussing orchestra playing versus getting to be a soloist or chamber musician and what that means as a musician and an artist. So much stuff. It was, it was great. Yeah. Hope we get to have him back. I would love that. Do something <laughs> with him in the future. And I think that our audience is really going to love this. It's a, just a really grounded and enlivened kind of conversation. So enjoy this conversation with Matthew Lippmann. 
Season three is sponsored by the Arkrest. You know, Liz and I are always being asked about our Arkrests and we're happy to share how much we love them. The freedom of movement has been life-changing for me. Me too. And I love how using the Arkrest allows my instrument to vibrate fully. And depending on how my body's feeling, I can also change the placement of the bass. Although Aaron and Tigran started the company in their home workshop, they've come a long way, continuing to innovate by experimenting with harder and softer woods and even new materials. Like fiberglass. There are bases for violin, viola, and even for small fractional instruments. And there are foam pads of different thicknesses, so you can find one that fits your body or instrument perfectly. And the guys over at Arcrest are sharing a special discount code for our listeners. Use the code VIOLACENTRIC for 10% off anything on their site. Yes, check out their offerings at thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T.com. And don't forget to use the code VIOLACENTRIC. Being freelance musicians means gigging in lots of different places with very unpredictable lighting situations. Oh my gosh, yes. How many times have you shown up to a church gig and wondered if you'll actually be able to see the music by showtime? Many times. Or it's a cocktail hour in a restaurant with ambient mood lighting at best. (laughs) We've all been there and have used those alien looking bendy lights that only light up the top of the page so that by the bottom of the music, you're sometimes just guessing or maybe we'll call it being creative. We didn't know it at the time, but the Aria lights could have saved us lots of eye strain and unplanned improvisation. Yes, and with a rechargeable battery that lasts eight hours, you'll never have to carry backup double A's in your case. You'll just charge it up at home and take the Aria light to your gig. The battery will even hold a charge for years between uses, not that you would go that long. Thank you so much to Aria lights for their support this season. Please check them out at ariolights.com. Located in a historic mansion in Tacoma Park, Maryland, you might get the impression that the team at Potter Violins are as formal as the breathtaking building that they work in. But when you go inside, instead you'll find the most relatable, skilled, and friendly staff. Yes, the people at Potter's are what really make it a special place. I love visiting because I know that whoever I work with is not going to make me feel like I'm crazy or just being picky. They're kind of like your favorite bartender. They're great listeners who give you what you need without judgment. (laughs) Yes, their technicians are not only super talented, creative, and resourceful. They take the time to collaborate with you so that the process of getting your instrument at its best really feels like a partnership. So if you're in the area, definitely stop by and introduce yourself to Chris, Rob, Kimberly, Derek, Jim, Melissa, and the whole team, or visit potterviolins.com to find what you need online. It's so fitting then that their shop is in this beautiful old house because the staff at Potter's really makes it feel like home. Our guest today is American violist Matthew Lippman, who is arguably one of his generation's great classical talents. He's incredibly in demand as a soloist and chamber musician, performing regularly with many major symphonies, including Chicago, Minnesota, the BBC Philharmonic, and also is active in chamber music with the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. Matthew is on faculty at Stony Brook University and also maintains a busy travel and touring schedule. And we are just thrilled that he's been able to fit us in amongst his prestigious engagements, including recording the entire catalog of Wolf Art Viola Etudes, (laughs) which I have in my studio right now. (laughs) It was only downhill from there. (laughs) 
we celebrate his entire catalog. So welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast, welcome. Matt. Welcome. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> we are absolutely thrilled. Yes. But we have to know, how did your career on viola start? Are you an OG violist or were you a violinist first? And either way is fine because you have one of each here. <laughs> <laughs> I actually am an OG violist. Ah. Um, so represent. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in the Jewish tradition, and as a kid, I sang a lot, and actually I was the resident shofar player in synagogue, so I guess that was kind of my first instrument. That's, uh-huh. of course, the ram's horn that you kind of blow on certain holidays. And my intention was to start playing trumpet, but somehow I fell into the viola. And the, <laughs> it's quite and a I different. Yeah, it's quite know, a quite different. <laughs> Although I could not imagine you as a trumpet player. <laughs> Nothing Very against cool. trumpet, of course. But. No, no, no. <laughs> trumpet, we love you, trumpet players. You're great. Yeah, yeah we have lots of friends. <laughs> Actually, what's interesting is which one of you is the OG violist? That's me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Liz, have you ever had violin envy? Honestly, in terms of certain things that come more easily, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Totally. I will say that I don't play professionally violin anymore, but I pick it up to teach and I'm like, so easy. <laughs> this is like a toy. <laughs> yeah. so Sorry, easy. violinists out yeah. there, yeah. but so much more physicality involved in playing yeah. viola. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely that resonates. <laughs> Yeah, and I actually find this funny story is as a kid during high school, I went to the uh, Perlman music program, which of course is Itzhak Perlman's kind of summer festival. And being around him, it's like, oh my God, I'll never forget that. That was like defining in my life, of course. And 15 year old me was like, oh, I kind of want to play virtuoso violin music. Maybe I should switch. And I asked Perlman what he thought about me switching to violin. And he said, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> and, <laughs> and of course, I think he's right. Of course, what he meant by that is I think there are more opportunities for violists. I, I, there are fewer of us. Everyone always needs a violist. So mm-hmm. I did listen to him, although I do have envy still. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was just going to bring up your telemon fantasies recordings that you did over the pandemic and how inspired me to do some of those those are actually you know violent pieces and read them a fifth lower as you know i actually got yeah during lockdown those really kind of saved me there was nothing going on right there was no reason to practice and so it was hard to stay motivated i'm sure for all of us and Mm -hmm. you know a lot of people went to bach i think the Mm -hmm. cello suites or the violin sonatas and partitas but those seemed like too much of a commitment in that time. I was like, these are too deep, too serious almost. And I found the Telmon fantasies and oh my God, they're amazing. They're no less of a composition. They're so quirky. They're so interesting, but they're a little shorter, a little lighter and a little bit more approachable. And I just spent like six months practicing Telmon exclusively. <laughs> I loved it. So thank you. There's something, <laughs> something so freeing about having the option to just play something lighter and you didn't have the pressure of all of the demands of when we're working regularly there yeah yeah. Yeah. it's such a privileged thing to say but sometimes i miss that pace of life (laughs) a little bit totally things are full swing back back really truly Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so would you say that 
I often say that the viola found me. That's how I ended up playing it because I wouldn't have necessarily chosen viola just like outright. It's just I heard it demonstrated Mm. and I wanted it to be the thing that I learned. How did you end up on viola then instead of trumpet? (laughs) That's a good question. Honestly, my intention was to switch. So I think wind instruments are offered in fifth grade in public. I started in public school. Mm-hmm, um, that also shows the importance of uh, public school music. 100%. Which, in yep. America, you know, that's yep. an issue, of course. But yeah, so I, I thought I'd just get a head start on a string instrument. And therefore, I didn't really have a preference. I didn't think about it because I was going to switch. And the uh, music director at my public school said, well, if you if you don't really have a preference, you should play viola because no one ever picks that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so accidentally, I think, but I actually remember this so vividly. You know, those little rental, I don't even know, Amazon. This is before Amazon, but those Amazon violas, those carbon fiber bows. Uh-huh. Remember the first week, we were only supposed to pluck the open strings. And of course, I was like, I'm not listening to that. And I took out the bow and just played all day long every day taught myself like the whole book or tried to (laughs) and I remember proclaiming to my parents that this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life Hmm. oh my god it was an accident but then it immediately felt right oh that is amazing Mm -hmm. okay so you start off as a elementary school kid on viola and you knew that you were going to play viola for the rest of your life. What did success look like for you then? What did you want to do with viola? Mm. And I'm curious to know how that's evolved over time. That's a really good question because I think it really has evolved over time and is still evolving with my own progression, but of course the world changing. Every few years, my goals would adjust. I think at first I wanted to teach in public schools and then I wanted to be in an orchestra and it always just kept going and I think I'm still trying to figure out what the next best thing is I think the viola is appreciated by some people but I would love to see it appreciated more by the mainstream mainstream classical music Mm -hmm. lovers and so I guess that's sort of where I'm at now is trying to figure out how to bring it (laughs) to more people (laughs) I love that. Also, I think it's really interesting to just get your perspective on how your career sort of morphed into being a soloist rather than winning a job in an orchestra and things like that. Our audience is primarily freelancers. And that's what we do. And, you know, we've sort of been just cobbling together a career. And I guess in a way, soloist is also a freelancer, right? Because you're you're getting these opportunities. But it can sometimes feel like, wow, this person is a soloist. Like they (laughs) made it in this way. (laughs) And I mean, do you feel like it's just been kind of an organic progression in that way? Or are there specific steps that you had to take to make that the direction of your career? Organic, yes. But also, by the way, that's very kind of you to say soloist, because I would say <laughs> probably 90% we... of my concerts are chamber music, but I, I'll take Fair it. enough. <laughs> I kind of put those in the same category. Chamber musician <laughs> career, too. Like, uh, to have yeah. a career in it, oof, yeah, that's that would be my dream, really. <laughs> Yeah. And the the reality of the viola anyway, is that it's such a versatile instrument. I once Mm -hmm. I studied with Tobias Zimmerman, who's like, of course, viola goddess, my (laughs) idol. And I once asked her also something to the effect of why viola. And she said, well, I love its versatility. And 
as time goes by, I really feel like that is the key to a career with the viola. I play at the Gym Music Society you mentioned. That's kind of my main gig. But then right now, for example, I'm playing my first Strauss Don Quixote. So I'm sitting guest principal of an orchestra. I haven't played in an orchestra since Juilliard like eight years ago. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was actually really nervous for the first rehearsal <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> That's so and I, interesting. I know Tabea does stuff like that too and commissioning pieces. Last June, I got contacted to learn a concerto by Richard Wernick, who I'd never heard of. And it wasn't composed for this occasion. I think it was composed in the 80s. But for example, he's still living. Learning new music is a big part of it. I love doing it all and to kind of celebrate music and celebrate the voice that can do it all. Mm-hmm. is something I really like doing. It's awesome. It's a really special thing to have a purpose and a mission in your work. And I know a lot of us are kind of trying to figure out what that is. And I think it's okay to know that it's going to evolve. Mm-hmm. Totally. Know? Like, for example, when I started, I knew pretty early in my career that I wanted music to be in my work. And I thought also that I was going to be a teacher. I was going to be an orchestra director or a band teacher or something. Mm -hmm. And then it evolved to, I want to win an orchestra job. And so down the audition track, I went. And it hasn't taken me to a full-time orchestra playing job. So part of my work right now is trying to reconcile, is my professional life a success? Or is there something else that I'm meant to do? Yeah. It's nice to know that even for you, who we all from the outside perceive as an extraordinarily successful musician, that you still see that kind of evolving for yourself. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I, I love the way that you phrase that because recently I've been thinking a lot about the idea of being present or flexible. And I think that extends to so many different areas of life. Sometimes I talk with my students about you, know, you can go to the practice room and practice all day long. But then if you're not open or flexible or present in the moment, you can get stiff because you're trying to force things to happen the way you prepared them instead of noticing the energy, noticing the atmosphere, adjusting to it. And I think there are parallels, like you just said, with with life as well. I mean, I can try my best to think of ideas or contact people and try to work with them. But I would say at least half the time, it's things I didn't prepare for that are coming to me and I'm Mm -hmm. reacting to them. And then, of course, those relationships grow and continue. And it's like a puzzle. And it's um, it can be so frustrating, actually, being, I don't want to say narrow-minded, but but having only one idea or one picture of what you want to do. Because if it doesn't work out, then that's your whole identity. But if you're open to different possibilities, I think you can go like a river or something. You can go where the possibilities are and be happy with that. Oh, it's so good. You're like speaking our language right now. And I I think a big thing that you just said, it also is about identity, but in this way that the more we understand about ourselves, you mentioned presence. I know you talk about gratitude in a lot of interviews that you've done. And there was one that we watched that you mentioned multiple times that like every moment of your life is your happiest moment, which I think is incredible. It's an incredible thing to say. But but the more we have access to understanding ourselves as the human beings that we are and remain open, those possibilities present themselves, you know. But it is a real struggle, I think, for a lot of musicians. We put ourselves on this track of of what success is supposed to look like. Yeah. It really does take some active work to reframe that. 
Yeah, I'll just say one more thing about this. The identity thing is really interesting because I think as artists in general, I think it's really hard to separate your job from who you are. Mm -hmm. And that that can be a beautiful thing. That is one of the beautiful things about being an artist, right? It's an expression of your personality when you play. But at the same time, most of the world has a job they go to and then the job ends and then they come home and they're not working anymore. And I think, for example, even something as silly as playing a note out of tune, people take that so personally. (laughs) It's like, you know what I mean? It's... It happens. All the time. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a reflection of your character. (laughs) (laughs) Bad intonation does not equal bad person. (laughs) I love it. Well, there's something to explore there. You know what's funny? Okay, self. You said that, and I just immediately thought about this. So I'm playing an orchestra this week on location. That's you don't know You're this, lo- but this is, not my, this is not my normal background. Okay. <laughs> my friend's house Same. bedroom. I just thought about this because I'm having two experiences because it's a fantastic orchestra I'm playing with. Everybody's really on top of their game. If I do something I'm not happy with, I immediately recognize that internal like, oh god. Yeah. I do really well with that these days. I've I've healed that in a lot of ways. But the same thing will happen if somebody else around me does something that I'm like hmm. <laughs> Yeah. There's that like yeah, little bit of judgment. We're judgy totally, sometimes. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. I have to stop myself and be like, this, this is not that big of a deal. It's okay. It's all gonna be okay. We're just we're literally just making music. It's not that serious. Yeah. It's so funny. Actually just just yesterday somebody texted me, not a close friend, just may I know, texted me and my first reading of it was exactly that. Oh, that was a sharp tone. Why did why did they give me that tone? And then I reread it and I was like, actually it's literally perfectly <laughs> polite. It's just my insecurity about the interaction that made me go there. You know what I mean? And yes. if you're just objective, you take one step back. <laughs> All of a sudden, okay, it's actually just perfectly fine. You know what I mean? Absolutely. (laughs) They're not doing it because because they're a horrible person. They're just doing a thing, right? right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's all okay. Have either of you read The Four Agreements? Do you know this book, Mm -hmm. The Four Agreements? It's essentially a book of, I guess it's got spiritual elements to it. It's from like Toltec concepts and philosophies. And two of the four agreements are don't take anything personally and don't make assumptions. I really try to remember that in my life because nine times out of 10, if something is going haywire, it's because one of those two things is happening on either end. Yeah. That happens a lot in our business. There was one other thing I wanted to say that just dawned on me as you were talking about it, this idea of separating our job from ourselves and Mm -hmm. how hard that is as musicians. I've been thinking a lot lately about this concept of, and it probably comes from Stephanie and I are working with a group and we're doing The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. So there's a lot of discussion about, um, there's a mail truck outside. That's oh, why that that's barking is. is. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. That's a new development. Anyway, Stephanie, we were just reading this passage to each other the other day about how there's no thing that we get our inspiration from. Like that comes from this source somewhere else. And Muse is presented to us in various ways through people, through things, through places, mm. whatever that could be. And our gift of music is part of that. So mm. it's like the calling, but it's very easy to lose our identity in it because it's so powerful. 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's really interesting. I'm curious about what kinds of practices you use on a daily basis. You mentioned gratitude being a very important practice in your life. I was on this random Zoom session that you were in during the pandemic with Alyssa Tong for String Insiders. Oh, sure. Yeah. And you were mentioning how sound, you know, comes from your chakras. And I was just like, yes, tell me all about all of these mystic things that you're into. Uh, side Sidebar, we're pretty woo-woo here, Matthew. <laughs> I love it. We're practical, but woo-woo also. Yes, yes. Is that an official term, woo-woo? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's like, yeah, that's our byline. (laughs) Thank you for that. I honestly, I don't know. I'm very, very obviously not just inspired, but deeply affected by the time I continue to spend with my viola professor from Juilliard, Heidi Castleman. She's 80 now. She's always been woo-woo a bit. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But in the last years, she's gotten really into Qigong and energy and mm-hmm. and meditation. I, I'm not at the place yet where I actively practice any sort of systems of meditation or movement or anything. But the ideas are really interesting to me. And specifically how the viola itself, to actually play it is a physical experience. And mm-hmm. so to be able to express something through your body is literally pivotal in the success of playing the viola and that gets spiritual too i mean if you think about you know like like you brought up the chakra thing it's it's so true that i think we all have an expressive center and to find it and go with it is really important know your strengths know your weaknesses even something as simple as trying to find a muscle to relax i feel like that can be a spiritual thing too because half the battle of letting go is is mental do you know what yeah. I mean? A hundred percent. One of the things I tell my students a lot, and I, this is how I actually feel, by the way, is the viola as an object will catch you. Like You don't have to be worried about falling because it'll catch you. Mm. you know, if, if you're walking a tightrope, the viola is the safety net. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's silly, but the idea that it's a partnership. I mean, the difference between, like, for example, missing a shift or not missing a shift is that. <laughs> It's literally trust the viola, let it help you or fight it and then miss. Yep. I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, definitely. Because I, okay, full disclosure, Liz is the more of the two. Like she's to into the star charts and horoscopes and stuff. Okay. And, and I am, all the stuff. it is seeping into me through osmosis. She has the no osmosis choice. of our relationship. <laughs> I am becoming a vessel for this. So <laughs> I love that. Awesome. I'm evolving. Hey, we're coming towards each other. That's true. So Aquarius yes. with uh, Leo rising. What does that mean to you? Oh, Okay, Aquarius is an enigma, actually. Aquarius is a Mm. difficult sign. I won't get too much into this. We won't talk too much about astrology because I could go for a while. But it is the bonus bonus footage. It is the second to last (laughs) sign in the zodiac. And so the further along you go in the 12 signs, the more all-encompassing and evolved those signs are. Hmm. Well, because they take on the traits of all the signs before them. So they've been uh, affected by it. Yeah. Yes. My like very limited experience. There's a spiritual side, but there's also a very like sort of real world kind of like I'm in it kind of vibe. Hmm. Leo rising (laughs) is me, 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 me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
It's a violin envy personality. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's what's interesting, right? What's your moon sign? Do you know your moon sign? I think it's Aquarius as well. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I have, I have yeah. a lot of Aquarius. I have to look it up. After the first three, I, I forget. Yeah, because moon sign is how you feel internally, right? And so right, yeah. if those are at odds with each other, but I actually think Aquarius and Leo have a lot in common. I think they're... I think they can get along with one another. In other words, they're mm. not at odds. Sometimes you hear somebody say what they're what they are, and you're like, okay, so you feel totally different than the way people see you, which I think is yes. always very interesting. Yeah, and some people have internal conflicts because of that. I mean, you, yeah. they're just struggling. I, I think I don't know how much I believe in astrology, but like that can be true. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. can be complementary, or they can fight. Yeah, one of my best friends who's maybe one of the few people who is more along the spectrum than <laughs> I am, I know. She would say that all of this, at the base level, it's information. You know, it's mm. information to like give you insight and, and make you ask a question about yourself. You know, even if you don't say, I'm 100% on board with everything this thing says, because who's going right. to be, right? Nobody's no. going yeah. to believe yeah. everything 100%. You got to take right. everything with a grain of salt. But it's information and it makes you go, oh, I wonder if I do that thing, or I wonder if that's why I do this, or whatever. And then yeah. you're exploring self. I think there's a reason why violists are prone to this kind of direction. Yeah, me too. First of all, the fact that there's a resonant box that's touching you, and it rings so much more than a violin, and it makes a deeper part of you ring. Obviously, that affects us firstly, but then to just even make a sound on the darn thing, it's like... You just have to be in touch with your body. And actually, violinists who have good tone, I, I, I won't give my opinion, but... When they achieve really good tone. <laughs> yeah, the, one, the ones who can do that are actually playing in a similar way. I mean, it's obviously not the same weight or the same speed of, in the left hand, but the idea that their bodies are neutral and reactive and flexible. It, one time I studied with Kim Kashkashian at the Ravinia Festival also a million years ago. And I only had a few lessons with her, but they were also transformative. And one of the things she said is that playing the viola should be pleasurable. And I was like, what? No, it hurts. What are you talking about? This <laughs> hurts. And she said, no, it should feel good. And just that slight shift, it just immediately changes the way you sound because all of a sudden you're open to receiving the viola's resonance and, and working with it. That's I like such viola. a true, powerful <laughs> thing. Yeah, just that little shift in perspective. So many yeah. things in life. I'm going to try totally. that in my double that rehearsals way. today. <laughs> yes. Playing an orchestra is is Painful. hard though. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a Yeah. It's been a long couple weeks. <laughs> Physically, but I'm I'm actually really glad we're talking about it because it's <laughs> it's a welcome reminder that I'm very much in my head, you know, working with my body in real time in these rehearsals, just mm. speaking to this part of my shoulder or speaking to yeah. another part of my body that's poking me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's gonna lighten things a little bit for me today. So that's that's very good. I suppose playing an orchestra is a little bit more like being an athlete. Playing an instrument in general is like being an athlete. But for example, most of what I do, even if it's a chamber music rehearsal, I mean, I can 
dictate when I play or when mm -hmm. I stop playing or mm -hmm. how I play. But in orchestra, somebody else is telling you when to play, how to play. So you can't go with your body all the time. You kind of just are forced to do a job regardless of how you feel. And look, I felt that yesterday in my first orchestra rehearsal in <laughs> almost 10 years. So I can only Whoa, imagine. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, felt your, you felt your autonomy slowly just drip yeah. away from you. <laughs> the tremolo, the tremolo. The tremolo. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I just talked with a mutual friend of Steph and mine about this the other week that she's just got this rigorous schedule right now in orchestra. She's a principal. And she feels like her creative mind is just completely tucked away somewhere in a closet because everything she's doing musically is just like she's an artisan of what somebody else wants of her. I could imagine that also affects you physically, actually, now that we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. Mind body connection for sure. I have a friend I, who I won't name who is almost more susceptible to that than anybody I've ever, ever met. If one day they're down, their body is just collapsing and vice versa. Oh. It's like, it's totally a thing. Yeah. I have that a lot too. That's a, a, a and can be a hypersensitivity thing. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way I'm grateful because I can't lie to myself about anything. <laughs> can't fake anything because <laughs> yeah. that's good and bad <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> i struggle with the ability to push through sometimes i need to work on like all right all mm -hmm. right listen i know everything's a mess right now but let's just let's do what we gotta do <laughs> Anyway, this is <laughs> this was a great tangent. Yeah. I don't even know how we started it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. How how deep can we go? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I have another topic we can get deep on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Actually, this one is more of a philosophical thing about social media. Mm -hmm. You are of a slightly younger generation than Liz and I, and social media, I'm sure, has been a much more big part of your life, professionally and personally. And I'm curious, because you, you do post, or at least during the pandemic, I enjoyed a lot of your posts just performing for the camera. How do you feel about the role of social media in your life? What are your philosophies on it? It's interesting. I definitely remember a time playing viola, even playing viola professionally already, or somewhat professionally, where it wasn't really a concern, social media. And I think that's interesting because people who are, let's say, 21 right now, probably don't remember a time oh, before yeah. social media. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting because if you're born to the idea that, oh, it's just something we do, that's very different than, oh, wow, I have to try to do this thing now that doesn't seem like it's totally connected. It's been an adjustment to have it in my life, for mm -hmm. sure. I view it practically. I think it's something that we should do. It's a little bit like a business card. I mean, our whole lives are on our phones now. Mm -hmm. Who gives out business cards? Instead, somebody can go to your Instagram. I don't, I made one TikTok once and it took me three hours. So I don't really do TikTok. We're scared of TikTok. I know, I know, no. but it's, it's definitely a nice place to curate a presentation of who you are as an artist. Where I think it's dangerous is if it becomes the main attraction. I think it's probably true that some people who are really, really good at it and have a lot of, really a lot of followers, 100,000 or something like that, I'm sure their lives are a little bit different and I'm sure they do get opportunities through social media. I always post about, well, not always, I'm not always good at it, but sometimes I post about my concerts or whatever, and maybe you'll get a few people, but it's 
for me, it hasn't really seemed like a direct way of bringing together, let's say, Instagram and a concert hall. I mm-hmm. I think one is a summary of the concert hall or Cliff Notes version and hopefully in the future can inspire people to come. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm still figuring it out. I feel like if I haven't posted in like a week or two, I do feel like, oh, I should probably do that. And one of the frustrations about playing mostly in America is that in general, unions are a great thing. They protect us, but it's impossible possible to get recordings from your performances and European oh. artists after every single concert they play immediately there's just video and the oh. one way that that affects us is social media and so it's sometimes really frustrating when you're like okay I literally just played this Schumann American Builder that I'm really proud of and I have no way of showing people oh my god I never thought of that I know we only think of it on the other because side oftentimes when yeah. I see your stuff or from other artists it's from England yeah. or it's from Hong Kong or yeah if you think about even YouTube if you go to YouTube to search for a piece it's always Europe always yes oh yeah. my gosh I never There's, thought of that w- when was the last time you saw Philadelphia Orchestra on YouTube oh old recordings yeah, they, it, there just are none. Yeah. I sound like I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. But some of these orchestras have amassed a real following and they really get a lot of people interested in their concerts because of it. I will say the Chamber Music Society where I play, you've probably seen videos online from their stuff. And that's because they actually did some campaign. Where, I don't know the numbers, but I think they got a million donations to buy the rights to their own recordings. And it took so much money and so much effort and lawyers and all this stuff to do that but they did that and so they have some online presence because of that now but yeah that is wild it's it's yeah. really fascinating and it, it has me thinking because through this whole conversation there have been kind of multiple points that i've thought in a way social media has mainstreamized classical musicians for a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't even think about us i just think about the community of people i know that are not in our world who have just seen what i do because i feel more comfortable sharing things online if you take that to like the orchestras or the musicians of america doing this work and there's no access point in that whole world for people to know what philly orchestra is doing because all of these recordings are locked up and to me feels like maybe the structure of that is a little antiquated i'll go there and say it i'm not complaining either but i but it (laughs) seems it seems a little behind the times like maybe you know when we speak about the union maybe the musicians as a collective should consider yeah how that might change for the better how that might help yeah Um, totally and i don't know so much actually about this kind of stuff but it seems to me that rights copyrights are a really important part of the musical landscape in america and they're expensive right (laughs) Right. the rights to your own performances if there were just a little bit of government support that would be for example the perfect area to put it yeah right Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's just crazy. We bemoan how much classical music is a part of culture in Europe, and we admire that so much from afar, mm-hmm. yet we're not willing to take the steps to actually make it accessible to people here in the United States. And we're all like, oh, why don't people listen to classical music? Well, <laughs> here's one reason why. Yeah. That's such an astute observation. There's definitely more work to do, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So speaking of the future of classical music, what is the future one number one bringing for you? And what are you excited to see the future changes in classical music bringing? Yeah, I mean, this is the age old question, right? It's a hard question to answer. I've invested my whole life in the idea that searching for the most honest way of expressing something through the viola is important. And I I, I don't think we should lose that. I, I don't even know how to say it. But as soon as we lose that element that it's okay to just post a 15 second thing that's just light and easy and then that's what our art is i don't think that's the way forward i think we need to provide escape for people i think we need to transport listeners go to deeper places i mean that's the whole point right so to try to figure out how to present that in a modern way is the puzzle Right, that's the puzzle. And I think it's totally possible. I mean, one thing I would like to see go are, for example, tails, (laughs) you know, tuxedos. Which Working a, on in it. a lot of places they've gone. Yeah. Working on yeah. it. Yeah. It's progressively getting better though. Looking fancy is great, but being able to express yourself, for example, not allowing people to clap between movements. I think if somebody feels excited about what they just heard, they should clap. A hundred percent. Yes. Yep. With you. Yep. Honestly, one thing that I don't really harp on my colleagues, but sometimes I request if you walk out on stage, the audience claps they receive you. That's wonderful. And then there's about 15 minutes of fidgeting and adjusting the stand and checking to make sure your shoulder rest is there. The idea that you're presenting something in entirety, not just from the first note. Yeah, well, that's a really good one, too, because I think all of that rigmarole (laughs) sort of detracts from the performance. And I think it takes audiences out of presence. Because if there's that whole school of thought that like orchestras shouldn't tune on stage, Mm -hmm. that tuning Mm -hmm. should happen before you go on stage, and then everybody walks out, you sit down and you start playing. Because Mm -hmm. if you do that, then your audience is like, oh, they're like ready to go. Instead, it's like they watch you do this routine. And it doesn't it doesn't sound like anything except just Mm -hmm. kind of a wash of sound. And it's it's really interesting. And I think there are actually European orchestras that do tune backstage when they walk out on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because they would understand this. <laughs> yeah. We tried this in one orchestra that I was a member of, and it was so <laughs> awkward. <laughs> Like it felt very high school. <laughs> and many of the or, many of the musicians were like mutiny. <laughs> this is this cannot happen. But it was funny. I just had a very inspiring concert weekend where there was music by two living composers on it, <gasps> and That's there what was, I was gonna say, yeah. clapping between movements. Just so much enthusiasm, yeah. so much energy generated for it. And you're thinking to yourself, especially I told Stephanie this earlier this week. There was a piece of music that was really tough to listen to sometimes, and you could have just heard a pin drop. People were so captivated. Mm-hmm. Human beings today are going through so much collectively mm-hmm. because of the the shifts that we're experiencing yeah that people writing today can resonate with that particular brand of struggle or experience and they can handle it the audiences can handle it it should be embraced i think you've talked about this before too i think we've heard you talk about new music mm-hmm. being written and and how important that is too oh yeah i don't also again don't want to point fingers but you know i think mozart for example is my favorite composer always probably will be i there's for me nothing better but a whole program of mozart 
no, that's not interesting. I don't want to hear that. I want, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to experience yeah. this genius enlightened music in the context of something that's also happening now. I, I don't see how it's as relevant if it's just all Mozart being played an old way, right? Like it means more if there's music of right now, music of maybe the last 75 years, also a thoughtfully curated program. And that's also, by the way, going back to the viola thing, I think this is the time of the viola. I really mm-hmm. feel like that I so many times have been told, oh, we love Matt, but we can't have a violist. You know, we just don't do that. And I think that's changing. I don't see how playing the same Tchaikovsky concerto <laughs> or Rachmaninoff piano <laughs> or like, yes. you know I mean, if you yes. if you look at the big orchestras, even still today, sometimes it's the same six pieces with the same six people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's changing. And I'm excited for that because I think there's so much value in hearing new things. And I think audiences are less scared of new music. First of all, one, because the style of most of the compositions being composed now is much different than it was in, say, 1970 when it yes. was completely <laughs> serial. Yes. You know, it sounded like a Schoenberg. dial-up modem or something. <laughs> I, I think music being composed now, I think people want to enjoy it. And if you can dedicate yourself and if you can bring intensity and honesty to any performance, I think any style of music will be convincing. Definitely. 100%. Chamber music is a beautiful avenue for playing music by people alive today. And I have really found, Stephanie and I have done some stuff for Viola Duo and with my quartet, composers who are alive today, there is something that I recognize in myself when I play that music. And if I can Mm -hmm. recognize it in myself and I can translate that to people, they're going to recognize it too. Whereas, yeah, I'm not sure serialism ever took off like that. <laughs> Talk about a dystopian time. Yeah. Maybe that was music of the time. It that was, was like Cold War yeah. era. Yeah, yeah, totally. Who knew when you were going to get nuked? Right. Maybe that's what the time was. That's <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> So what's coming up for you? What can people look out for in your future offerings? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I'm working on a really fun recording project that you'll have to look out for. No spoilers. No spoilers. Can't say anything. Just more of the same, I think. A lot of chamber music in New York, around the world, concertos here and there. Oh, one thing I'm doing is I'm going on tour with Anne-Sophie Mütter all over Europe in June. So that'll be fun. Ah, oh, awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much for giving us your time. Seriously, this, this was, was <laughs> did not disappoint. Thank you for producing this. I think it's really needed for a lot of us to hear conversations and have conversations. And I'm glad to be here. Thank oh, you so much. Excellent conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a great, great way to start a day. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season sponsors, ArcRest, Potter Violins, and Aria Lights. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. If you loved today's episode, consider writing us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want the chance to hang with us and have access to behind-the-scenes audio and video recordings, check out our new Patreon. The Viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon. 